who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That, that, that question is a question on which the world hangs. The world hinges on that. Who is Jesus? It divides Christians from Jews and from Muslims. Its differing answer lies at the fault line of continents, civilizations, cultures. It's at the watershed of moments of history, epics of history, changes in how that is answered. The rejection of Jesus gave birth to the secular enlightenment vision and then to its daughters, communism and fascism. Who Jesus is in your thinking will determine what is right and wrong, how you think about what is right and wrong. What you think the world is about, the meaning of life, the meaning of existence, the meaning of any given human life. Who Jesus is in your thinking determines how you conceive of the world's progress, where it's going, what's happening, where it's heading. Jesus, either a long-dead Jewish prophet or the living God who will come to refashion all things. Jesus, a person who spoke crazy things or the God who continues to speak now and will be the judge. Who is Jesus? It's, it's the crucial, it's the pivotal question. People asked it in his own day, and they have been asking it ever since. So today, uh, we look into the gospel, and we see Jesus take that question head on. Who is he? And he gives the answer that we all must deal with. It's his answer. So if you're going to take Jesus seriously at all, no, no facile, nice, moral teacher, enlightened philosopher, he does not allow that. He gives an answer for who he is. And we have to deal with that answer. So enter with me into the text in John chapter 8. We're marching slowly but steadily through the Gospel of John. We enter at verse 12. The entire conversation from verse 12 to the end of the chapter is concerning this question about who Jesus is. And it arises, the conversation arises, because Jesus says the following really startling thing. I am the light of the world. There in verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. On its own, that's a stunning claim. Just on its own. Just on the surface. Uh, but he could, you could construe him as saying something like, he is the greatest of philosophers. Some have tried to construe him that way. He has brought light to the world. That is, he's brought enlightenment to the world. If, if you hold on to his words and his teaching, it will bring you out of the ways of darkness, out of Plato's cave. And they'll show you how to live. If you follow his philosophy, you'll have enlightenment. 
That is, you'll have insight into the very essence of the way the world works. That's not what he's saying, as the conversation shows. But the occasion itself eliminates that option. This was no ordinary occasion on which he said these words. The occasion determines why the words are so charged, why immediately there ensues this really intense conversation, and why the conversation goes where it does. At the beginning of the previous chapter, in chapter 7, John tells us that this whole course of events was at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This was the great, the national campout, when people would set up tents, they'd come to Jerusalem, and for a week, they would camp out, and they'd come daily to the temple. They were remembering how God had, after delivering their ancestors from Egypt, Passover, had led them for 40 years in the desert, guiding them out using a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire. They were remembering that dependence that they had on him. And each night in the festival, they lit candles. As the darkness came, they lit candles in remembrance of the pillar of fire and how God was with them in that pillar of fire. The I am, the eternal one. So the I am was with them in that pillar of fire each night. The people gather in the temple grounds and they light the candles. It's at this feast that Jesus says directly, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You get it. You get the implication. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet, not just a prophet, not just a philosopher. I was in the pillar of fire. I am the Lord. I am the light of the world. This thing that we're remembering, God with us, God guiding us in the pillar of fire. I am the light. It is such a startling claim that the Pharisees don't hear it. They don't or they, they refuse to initially. So they get caught up with disputing about whether Jesus is qualified to make claims about himself. Is he even qualified to be speaking? They get lawyery, you know, they, legalese. But Jesus has made the claim, and he will not leave the conversation until they get it. And so we see that the conversation has these turns, but Jesus keeps coming, keeps coming back to it, back to it. So let's see how it progresses. The first part of the discussion concerns how legal testimony works according to the law. This is where they're saying, you don't even, you're not allowed to make claims about yourself at all, so you should stop. In verse 17, Jesus acknowledges that in the law, two witnesses are required. And so that's what the Pharisees are citing when they're denying Jesus' claim, when they're denying his right to make claims about himself, as if he has authority. Because for them, the authority to speak 
comes from being legitimized by other authorities. You need other rabbis. You need the Sanhedrin. You need other Pharisees to acknowledge that you have authority to speak. But Jesus says, you don't understand who I am. You don't understand what I just said. I am not subject to the legitimizing that's applied to people. He says, you esteem or evaluate or judge or legitimize according to the flesh. I don't do that. I don't give legitimacy. I don't receive legitimacy. I'm not part of that system. But if verifying legitimacy is what concerns you, mine comes from the Father. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So let's note right here that throughout the conversation, Jesus is in charge of it. He's not being reactive here. He is in charge of where this conversation goes. He's steering the subject. He's leading them to crucial considerations. The question of who Jesus is, that's the question, and it's inseparable from his relationship to God the Father. And so that becomes this major theme. But look, their question, where is your father? It shows they don't get, they don't get the point. They don't get that he is identifying himself with God the Father. They're saying, where is your father? What's not clicking, they are not understanding that Jesus is talking about God the Father. In the Old Testament, on very few occasions, it's just like three spots in the prophets that God the Almighty is referred to as Father. That wasn't a normal way for the Jews to talk about God. So these Pharisees are taking Jesus to mean Joseph. He's talking about his father. That somehow his father gives him legitimacy? Where's your father? Where's Joseph? In verse 22, they're thinking he could be saying he'll go to Joseph. Will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come? He's going to go to his father? In verse 27, John comments, they did not understand that when he talked of being sent and speaking about what he has heard, he spoke to them of the Father, God the Father. They didn't understand it. So at this point in the conversation, then the, the Pharisees are stuck in thinking Jesus is talking in earthly terms because they've raised that question about legitimacy to speak. They think he is speaking in earthly terms. And on those terms... They don't think he has uh, any right to speak the way that he does, with the kind of authority that he's speaking with. Now, up to verse 30, we are covering a lot of Scripture today. Up to verse 30, Jesus has twice recommunicated his primary claim. In 23 and 24, he says, I am from above. 
I'm not of this world. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then in verse 28, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's the title uh, of the eternal king from Daniel. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Now, as far back as 1611, the King James Version, translators have supplied a word that I think is actually unhelpful. I'm not qualified to have opinions about this, but I have opinions. <laughs> translators have supplied he. If you, unless you believe that I am he. But John's gospel has no he in the Greek. There's no he. It says, if you do not believe that I am. And then, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. They must believe. It is crucial for them to believe that he is the I am. That's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. He is the eternal one, the I am. This I am is the light of the world. And he, Jesus, is saying, I am the same. And unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 30, John comments that as he spoke with such powerful authority, many believed in him in some sense. Many, many trusted him. They're not actually getting what he's saying, but they're responding to the way that he's speaking. They're responding to authority. Because the second part of the discussion, they, the penny drops. They get what he's saying. And things take a turn. It's the second part of the conversation where the world divides. Many... Many, you, you've known many, have a willingness to misunderstand Jesus, to take parts of what he says and then to cast him in images that we prefer, ways that we would like him to be, uh, to, to respond to him emotionally as this sort of fuzzy moral figure. You know, he's, how beautiful, willing to, willing to suffer, willing to, willing to die. How beautiful that his disciples trusted him and followed him even as he was oppressed by those, the terrible Romans. What an idealistic figure he is, standing against the status quo. He's so brave. What happens next leaves no room for that. That's drivel. No, no room for that. Jesus says... Now to these who are, they're drawn to his authority. He says, do you want to be disciples of the light that I bring? Then, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will set you free. Again, he's leading this conversation. He's pushing it. Let's now talk about your state his implication, they get that they are not free. That they're, in fact, 
enslaved, despite being children of God, despite being Abraham's descendants, despite being the people God had delivered from Egypt, his statement that they need to be set free is intolerable. It's, it is unstomachable. We have the truth, they want to insist. We have it. God gave us the law. We have the truth. We are legitimate descendants of Abraham. We're not mixed like the Samaritans. We're not mixed like other peoples. We are the descendants of Abraham. We're God's people. How dare you suggest that you bring something that we don't already have? They're getting, they're getting him say, I'm not just an interpreter of the law. I am the giver of the law. They're starting to hear it. But they want to insist, no, we are the chosen house. So Jesus counters this confidence with the idea of two households. These upset Jews are claiming to be members of God's household because they're descendants of, uh, of Abraham. Yeah, we are part of God's household. The physical descendants. But Jesus goes back to that idea of how he evaluates. I'm from above, you're from below. You use earthly terms, you have earthly thinking. Let me give you insight from above. There are actually two households, only two. You guys are thinking of every tribe as a household. There's only two households. Even amongst the physical descendants of Abraham, there are two households. The real members of God's household will be like Abraham. They'll be people of faith. Verse 42 and following, if God were your father, because they had come to claim, oh, all right, so we're talking about God as father, he's our father. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's not a speck of truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and that is your household. That is stunning. The confrontation is stunning. He's applying verses 34 and 35. Whoever embraces sin, whoever commits to the practice of sin is a slave to sin. He is not part of the household of the Son of God, but is part of the house of rebellion. To embrace sin is to embrace rebellion. That's Satan's household. And there are only two households, two houses. Those set free by the Son 
to be in the family of freedom. And those who are in the house of rebellion, there is only one God. We're submitted to him and free, or we're in rebellion to him and slaves. But don't those Pharisees want God? I think we should ask that question. Don't, they seem really committed, right? Don't they want God? How is it that they can be so religiously committed but be in Satan's house of rebellion? They don't look rebellious. And that's exactly what they're insisting. We are not in rebellion. We have never been slaves to sin. It's to the heart of this problem that Jesus keeps driving and driving. And he brings it around to this. I know Abraham, who you claim to be your father. And I know the father, verse 54, of whom you say is your God. You don't know him, but I know him. You don't know him but I know him. In verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they are indignant. How can you say you've seen Abraham? You are not so. You're not even 50. Verse 58, Jesus replies, most assuredly, Truly, truly, the heart of this matter, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Finally, it clicks. He's been saying the same thing through the whole conversation, and finally it clicks. 1,800 years ago, I am. So it clicks, his claims to authority, his assertion to be the light of the world, that identification somehow with what was going on in the festival, his claim to determine who's free and who's a slave, this asserting himself over the house of God, he's claiming to be the I am. He's claiming to be the eternally present one, the one who was in the pillar of fire. And they want to kill him. Who is Jesus? He says who he is. They will not accept it. So this is what he means in verse 47. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Jesus is over the house of God. To refuse him, to refuse his words, is to be in a position of rebellion against God. And they can't bear to hear his words because they're slaves in the house of the rebel. The father of that house is the enemy of God, Satan the accuser, 
So why can't you want God? He says to them, why can't you want God? Why is it that you reject the rule of Jesus? Why can't you have both of those things? To want God and also reject Jesus. Because Jesus is the great I am. He is the eternal God. If you want God, you want Jesus. And that's where Jesus was leading them the whole time. At the Feast of Tabernacles, as they were remembering God's guiding, his leading them in that pillar of cloud and fire. Jesus tells them, I am the light. If you follow me, as God led the people, you will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. If you have me, you will have God. If you walk by me, if you hear my words, if you submit to my hand, you won't walk in darkness, but you will have life. He repeated it then. I am. Unless you believe that I am, you must accept that I am. I am. I am. And he's invited us to. Jesus only makes one invitation. It's the same invitation. Accept him. Surrender to him. He is the Lord. And he's invited us to be part of the household of faith in him. To be the free people. This is who we are. This is our celebration. That's what we're doing here. We're the free people. When we come together and we assemble as a household of faith, we're a household of the freed ones. And this, this faith must admit helplessness and dependence on God. We can't be like these Pharisees and say, we have all we need. We've never been slaves. We don't struggle against sin. No, we have to admit that we are in need. We came in the door in need. As you sit there, as I stand here, we're in need. We are deeply and utterly dependent on the power of God. Faith means we need God. And it means unless he's there for us, we're done for. Faith is accepting that reality. And at first, and at times, faith is a struggle. It, is, it can be difficult for us to, to acknowledge that. To say, I am weak. I am helplessness. I'm helpless. I don't have the resources I need. It is not in me to live righteously. It's not, my flesh doesn't have it. I just don't have it. It's hard. It, it can be a struggle. At the first, it is always a struggle. To be honest about your wretchedness. It's hard enough when we, we have that with regard to other people. We have to say you're sorry. 
But you have to admit to a spouse or a friend, I have done you wrong. It's painful to have God's light on our evil. But a steady, a steady faith in the merciful Jesus, a daily dependence, an honest weakness brings peace. Faith is a struggle at the beginning and at times. But steadiness in faith, and I think this is part of what we struggle with, is that steadiness, because then it becomes hard again. Steadiness in faith brings peace. When the struggle of faith comes to the end of itself, and a man or a woman or a child throws himself or herself just into the arms of God, on the mercy of God, that's rest. The struggle of faith comes to the end of itself. There is rest. There is peace. There is joy. That's freedom. That's what we're, that's what we're offered. That's the life we're offered. Freedom. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you that you spoke so clearly. You made the terms so open, so straightforward. Lord, I pray that your terms would come to us clearly, your terms of peace. And that each of us today would be willing to be weak with you, willing to accept our dependence. Holy Spirit, do that work that only you can do in us. In Jesus' name.